Hi, everyone. This is Scott from Prepare to Answer. I want to share some news with you about an exciting new resource that we've created called So Much More Than Sex. It's no secret that the subject of sex is one of the biggest concerns for young Christians today. That's why we've created So Much More Than Sex for senior teens and young adults. It's a four-part video series, complete with notes and discussion questions, that you can do with your young adults class, small group, or even on your own. The point of the series is to help you shift the narrative about sex away from seeing biblical teaching as little more than an outdated list of do's and don'ts, and replacing it with the overwhelmingly positive, life-giving, and eternally significant vision that the Bible gives for your sexually ordered body. If you want to get in on the So Much More Than Sex series, just follow the link in the episode description. And now we turn to today's episode. The following is a presentation of Prepared to Answer, a ministry devoted to seeing a new generation of Christians experience life transformation through a renewed mind by teaching them to think like Jesus. Not that long ago, I learned of the tragic loss of a family within my own church community, and my automatic response was, as is so often the case, to ask God, why? This is often our response to all such events, and while we must turn to God for comfort from His Spirit, because where else can we turn, we are also stretched in our faith to reconcile these things with our belief in God's goodness and love for us, and we do so not lightly. But I've many times found Christians who, in their moments of grief, find their faith in God not stretched, but completely dismantled, due in large part to the fact that they've not worked through the matter at all in their own minds beforehand. Consequently, their faith cannot accommodate their present experience of suffering, and their grief turns to cognitive dissonance. Needless to say, it's very difficult to comprehend inside of grief what we never took time to think about or understand outside of it. That said, we take this outsider's look today at this perplexing problem of why bad people prosper and good people suffer. And I actually find a treasure trove of wisdom in, of all places, the writings of St. Augustine. In an attempt to keep things brief, I'll simply summarize some of his more salient points. Number one, a Christian needs to learn how to process all things within the framework of redemptive history and final judgment. Augustine writes, Surely it pleased divine providence to prepare future goods for the just, which the unjust will not enjoy, and future evils for the impious, which will not torment the good. How vital for us as Christians to continually keep all things of this world within the broader context of eternity. In Canada, where I live, this is especially important, since our culture, and even sometimes would-be Christian teaching, attempts to place the locus of God's rewards or our attainment of the good life in this world. Don't forget Jesus' words. In John 16.33, he said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God's final display of justice will not be observed in this life, but will be revealed when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. So, to the extent that we experience the apparent injustice of the wicked prospering while the good suffer, we can take heart that such situations are not inconsistent with God's divine purpose. This age we live in is not the age of final justice, but the time of redemption and calling sinners to repentance. 
apparent suffering and reward, therefore, serve a different purpose than dispensing divine ultimate justice. As Augustine points out, God has stored up rewards for the just and punishment for the wicked that will not be revealed until Christ returns. Number two, as Christians we must accept that both the righteous and the unrighteous are recipients of God's goodness. Jesus instructs us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Why? It's because that's how our Heavenly Father acts, who, as Jesus said, causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, Matthew 5.45. And this serves its own purpose, since this common experience allows the Christian to testify to the non-Christian of God's goodness at the level of their own experience. The skeptic typically points to the experience of evil as cause for disbelief. One automatic response should be to remind the same that their disbelief must equally give an accounting for the experience of goodness. As Augustine said, from where then does goodness come? Number three, the Christian must accept that receiving God's goodness serves a purpose now for both the believer and the unbeliever. It isn't just benevolence that causes God to extend his goodness seemingly without prejudice. Scripture tells us that God has a purpose in blessing both the righteous and the unrighteous. For the believer, it's most of all for the purpose of experiencing his love. God loves to bless his children, so that they will live in the light of his love for them and consequently live in the appropriate posture of worship through thanksgiving toward him. To know God is to know his love. And so while our final hope of resurrection in Christ secures the fact of his love, receiving gifts of temporal goodness, in part, allows us to know his love in the present by experience. And I say in part because the Holy Spirit is also a huge participant in the experiential communication of God's love for his children. But for the unbeliever, too, God's goodness serves a purpose. And this purpose Augustine points out from Paul in Romans chapter 2, verse 4-6. to where he says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The goodness God grants the unbeliever, he intends as a witness to his love. He shows them kindness in the hope that they will receive it as His kindness and turn to Him as its giver. Conversely, for those who take all the goodness they can get and receive it as its own end, worshipping and serving created things rather than the Creator, as Paul says in Romans one twenty-five, they are storing up judgment for themselves, so that God will be proved right when He renders His final judgment for greedily receiving the good He gave while knowingly rejecting him as its giver. Number four, we must accept that experiencing evil also serves a purpose now for both the believer and the unbeliever. This is perhaps the most difficult point to accept, but one which through the eyes of faith again ends in glory to God in his providence. The typical objection to evil goes something like this. If God is truly good, then wouldn't he prevent anyone from experiencing evil? We will leave the logical arguments aside for another discussion, but at this point, simply reply that this statement is true unless 
God has a truly good reason for not doing so. Granted, his reasons must be embraced through the eyes of faith, but they do not therefore stand opposed to reason. I found Augustine's insights here sufficient enough to quote him at length. To this question he first states, God often plainly shows his work, even in the distributing of goods and evils. For if every sin were punished by an obvious penalty now, nothing would be thought to be reserved for the last judgment. On the other hand, if no sin were punished clearly by the divine nature now, no one would believe in the existence of divine providence. In other words, the sometimes withholding of punishment for sin allows for the hope of ultimate justice reserved for the day of God's final judgment. Indeed, God is withholding his full wrath, bearing with great patience the objects of his wrath, Paul says in Romans 9, so that again he will be seen as righteous for his judgment in the end, and so that those who are the objects of his wrath may yet repent and find forgiveness and redemption in Christ. In his mercy, he does not yet fully treat sinners as their sin deserves, and thank God for that. However, at the same time, God does punish sin here and now. As Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. It is our experience of evil as punishment for sin that enables us to see that something is horribly wrong in the world, and that something is us. The revelation of God's wrath in the here and now, then, is both judgment and grace. Judgment in that we're bearing the consequences of sin in rejecting God as God, and grace, because while certainly unpleasant, these consequences are not yet meted out in their full and final measure, indicating the need of and leaving time and room for repentance. As C.S. Lewis put it, suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Conversely, Augustine notes, it is similar with favorable things. If God did not grant them to some petitioners through a most evident generosity, we would say that such things do not belong to him. Likewise, if he granted them to all petitioners, we would think that, except for the sake of such rewards, we were not required to serve him, nor would such service make us pious, but rather greedy and avaricious. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when we pray, God answers and gives us a tangible blessing, while other times we pray and we do not receive the good we expected? While we can't know God's reason in any particular case, Augustine gives us great insight into why God sometimes grants our requests and other times does not. Even as human parents, we understand that in order to teach our children that we generously love them, we sometimes reward them and give them the things they want most. We don't always do this, however, because we want them to learn that obedience and good behavior are desirable in their own right, not simply as a means to reward. So, sometimes we give good, and sometimes we withhold it, all depending upon what lesson we feel our children most need to learn at any given moment. Number five, we accept that God's ultimate concern is not with the quality of life we enjoy now, but with the kind of person we become. Perhaps nothing more characterizes the uniqueness of the Christian worldview than this final point. Why, we might ask, has God left us here to live at all? Why not just transport us to heaven at the moment we profess faith in Christ? Why, especially when for some, staying here means living for extended periods in illness or pain? We may say 
that it's so we can witness to those who don't believe. Well, true. That's a tad too pragmatic, since if that were the only reason, then surely God could have found a less painful way for us to do so. No, we must accept that God's purpose in allowing us to remain and endure suffering is again rooted in his love for us. And Augustine gives us a window into why this is so by pointing us to the distinction between suffering endured by the wicked and suffering endured by the righteous. Again, I will quote him at length. He says, These things being so, whenever the good and the bad are afflicted equally, it is not the case that there is no distinction between them. For the distinction is not based on what they both endure. Subjected to the same fire, gold glows with a reddish gleam, but chaff smolders. Subjected to the same threshing sled, the straw breaks into small pieces, but the grain is freed from the husk. So one and the same onrushing force tries, purifies, and refines the good, but condemns, devastates, and exterminates the evil. Thus, visited by the same affliction, the evil curse and blaspheme God, but the good beseech and praise Him. It is not the kind of suffering, but the kind of person who suffers, that is so important. The fact is that God in His love is working for our ultimate good, but we must allow Scripture and Scripture alone to identify what that good is. Too many Christians have refused this and decided to define their ultimate good on their own terms, or have accepted the world's definition of such. But in this life, there is but one ultimate good toward which God is moving us, and, if we are wise, we will cooperate with Him in willing ourselves to be so moved. What is it that suffering produces in us in a way that nothing else can? We get our answer from the example of Christ himself. Hebrews 5, 8-9 says, Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Perfect obedience is our greatest good because only in perfect obedience do we become the kind of beings God made us to be, the kind of beings who can live with a perfect God forever. And the fact that Jesus himself needed to live for 33 years before, as the writer of Hebrews says, he was made perfect, tells us that perfect obedience isn't just some divine heavenly concept, but is a quality of living human experience. Yes, God will one day perfect us in a miraculous way, but that perfection will not be a completely foreign reality, because right now he seeks to train us in obedience. In effect, we are learning now in part to become that which we will be in full when Christ returns. And the fact of the matter is that in the school of obedience, suffering exposes our unlearned lessons in a way that nothing else can. I will never be able to identify my persisting rebellion against my Creator if life is always a bed of roses. Like nothing else, suffering exposes what is rock-bottom true of me. And if it's only through the crucible of trial and hardship that I can see my ongoing defiance against the God that I love and the Christ who I will spend eternity with, then only by faith we cry, Not my will, Father, but yours be done. Conclusion 
We're really blessed to still possess the preserved witness of those who've grappled with the weighty matters of faith before us. We're wise to listen to these voices from the past, for while centuries and culture separates us from them, the condition of the human heart remains the same, and God's work in Christ to redeem his people for himself has not altered. I hope that you will apply this to your mind so that God may do his necessary work in your heart. The preceding has been a part of the recording ministry of Prepared to Answer. For more resources to help you become more confident in living out and defending your faith in Jesus Christ, visit us at www.preparedtoanswer.org or on Facebook and Instagram at Prepared to Answer. Thanks for joining us, and may the Lord bless and keep you.